in this week's show a chilling warning that climate change could cause a pandemic-scale economic shock to small businesses once a decade. We follow the fast-growing COVID-19 spike across Africa and hear welcome news about how some countries have included refugees in their pandemic vaccination programmes. We'll also be learning about why drought could be the next pandemic. Don't take my word for it, that's what the UN's top disaster risk reduction official tells us in this week's interview. With us, as ever, is regular guest Solange Bejotegui Cortez, and she explains how the indigenous Aymara people came up with their own solution to a lack of rain. That's all coming up, but first, the news. Small businesses need much more help to invest in economic disruption from climate change, which could be as bad as the COVID-19 pandemic every decade, UN economists have said. A new report from the International Trade Centre, ITC, shows that one in four microfirms were at risk of shutting down three months into COVID-19, while only one in ten large firms was as vulnerable. This is significant because companies that managed to withstand the economic downturn caused by COVID-19 were five times less likely to fire employees during the crisis. At a press conference on Wednesday in Geneva, ITC Executive Director Pamela Koch-Hamilton said that the pandemic had laid bare the lack of resilience among small firms, which make up more than half of the global workforce. If such resilience was necessary during the pandemic, it will be even more crucial in addressing climate change. The economic disruption of climate change is expected to be like that of COVID-19-sized pandemic happening every decade. Going green is a survival imperative. The longer firms take to act, the higher costs become. Although small businesses account for more than 50% of global emissions, only 38% had invested in environmental adaptation, compared with 60% of large firms, according to ITC's SME Competitiveness Outlook report. In Africa, COVID-19 infections have risen for five consecutive weeks since the onset of a third wave in early May. Announcing the news, the World Health Organization, WHO, said that the latest wave of sickness had seen 474,000 recorded cases of coronavirus infection in 48 days, a 21% increase compared with the second wave. Africa can still blunt the impact of these fast-rising infections, but the window of opportunity is closing, said Dr. Machidisa Mweti, World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa. She insisted that everyone everywhere can do their bit to prevent transmission. At the current rate of infection, the ongoing surge is set to surpass the previous one by early July, according to WHO, which said that the pandemic is resurgent in 12 African countries. Weak observance of public health measures is behind the infection spike along with increased movement of people and the spread of variants. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Uganda, the Delta variant has been detected in most samples sequenced in the past month. Across Africa, the same variant has been recorded in 14 countries. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, on Thursday welcomed the growing number of countries that have offered COVID-19 vaccines to refugees, before urging others to do the same. To date, refugees and asylum seekers have begun receiving vaccinations in 91 out of the 162 countries that UNHCR has been monitoring. But it warned that countries should do more to remove barriers that limit access to vaccines for the world's 82.4 million forcibly displaced people. This includes in sub-Saharan Africa, where COVID-19 
COVID-19 cases are on the rise and where vaccination sites are located far from where refugees live. Some countries also require people to register for vaccines using an identity document, which many refugees do not own. Other states have set up online vaccination registration systems that can deter or prevent people without access to the internet or those who are not computer literate. Highlighting positive steps by many countries, UNHCR noted that Moldova and Serbia had delivered the vaccine to asylum centres, while Senegal and Cameroon had allowed refugees to register in designated locations near their communities. Portugal had also introduced a specific registration system for undocumented people to ensure that no one is excluded from the vaccine rollout, the UN agency said. The headlines there, and this is UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. Now to a global phenomenon that's been likened to a slow-onset pandemic disaster and which by the end of this century will likely expose 129 countries to greater food insecurity, poverty and inequality. I'm talking about drought and desertification. And like the new coronavirus, this dual threat impacts the world's most vulnerable communities disproportionately, making their lives even harder than they are already. Add to this the fact that much of this misery goes unreported and you start to get an idea of what's at stake. So, what could be done? Well, to discuss what's being done already on the world stage, I spoke to Mami Mitsutori, UN Special Representative of the Secretary-General for Disaster Risk Reduction. Here she is giving a brief overview of the key messages of a new report by the agency she heads, the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. We are focusing on drought because we do believe that this could be the next pandemic. Drought is a disaster with deep widespread impact and its true cost, both human and economic, is seriously underestimated. It's sometimes, many times called a hidden disaster because of its creeping nature. Can I just jump in there, Ms. Mitsutori? Recently you said that something like 129 countries are going to experience increased exposure to drought. Do you have any more details on the number of countries that really are already facing severe drought? Currently, drought is becoming a serious hazard, also affecting all of the Americas, North, Central, South, Australia, Southern Europe, Central Asia. And as you just mentioned, there is some analysis that by the end of this century, most countries in the world, and I'm really talking about most of them, will be affected by drought because of a combination of climate change and population growth. Wow. So within the next 80 years, almost all the countries of the world are going to be affected. In no more than 10 seconds, could you please define drought for us just to get it out of the way? Right. So in the report, we're using the definition from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The definition we're using is drought is a period of abnormally dry weather long enough to cause a serious hydrological imbalance. That's pithy enough. Thank you. Now, people might be aware of the consequences of drought among vulnerable populations in the Sahel, for example, in Africa. But what I thought was interesting from your report was that wealthier nations are also struggling. And in particular, you've mentioned the United States water shortages and uh, over in Europe on the Danube and the Rhine, there have been transportation issues. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about that. Yes, of course. So we have 17 case studies in this report. And 
quite a few of them are about what you would call wealthier countries in the global north. For example, in Australia, droughts are frequent, intense, and protracted with impact on agricultural production, but also on urban and regional water supply, irrigation systems, and state of ecosystems. You mentioned the Danube River Basin, including 19 countries where River Danube is crucial for water supply, and they have been attacked by drought in many instances, even since the beginning of this century, and affecting uh, various water-dependent economic sectors, vegetation, and aquatic environment. So yes, drought is not only a phenomenon for the global south, Africa, where it is indeed very severe, but uh, many, many wealthy nations. And also what I wanted to know was, how does the United Nations incorporate the needs of communities, and in particular indigenous communities, and why not in the Sahara, where there is a huge subterranean aquifer, apparently 60,000 billion cubic metres of water, and people are accessing it, but there are suggestions and worries that this is harming the traditional oasis herders. So does the United Nations take into account the needs of indigenous peoples in its recommendations? We absolutely do, Daniel. There is, for example, in the case of drought, a very good example in the innovative drought early warning system for sub-Saharan Africa, integrating indigenous and scientific drought forecasting approaches. Why is it important to include indigenous knowledge? It's important because these are proven methods across years and maybe decades. And also they are many times less costly than other methods. Of course, we need to include innovative ways of managing disaster risk and drought risk, but never to forget about the indigenous ones. And that is exactly what this report is also advocating for. Understood. And I think it might be useful to know also how much your agency believes it's going to cost to tackle drought and desertification And perhaps also finally, whether we are on course according to the Sendai framework on the reduction of disaster risk and losses in life, whether we're on target to reach, hit those targets by 2030. Unfortunately, I don't have the figure. Why? Because the impact of drought, the loss and damage that comes from drought alone is very much underestimated, as I mentioned. There are figures that talk about the direct economic loss from drought but this is really not including the indirect cost of drought. But let me try to answer your question in a different way. So we all know that it is important to invest in disaster risk reduction. Many times it is seen as a cost, but we should look at it as an investment for resilience and well-being. The World Bank tells us that if we invest $1 more for each infrastructure for its resilience, then we are saving up to $4 during the whole lifetime of the infrastructure in post-disaster recovery and maintenance. That is exactly what the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction is telling us to do for drought, which is becoming very serious, and we call it maybe the next pandemic, but all disasters. Now, I must say that we are not on track yet. COVID-19, sadly, even taking the first-term target, reducing mortality from disaster has been increased because of COVID-19. So what we really need to do is to do what the Sendai Framework is telling us to do, invest more before a disaster strikes us in our resilience, put that extra $1 in your infrastructure, 
Don't look at it as a cost, look at it as resilience building and improving your well-being. COVID-19 has told us that disasters affect all of us in a systemic way. So we need to bring together all the partners in the government, all sectors need to work together. And importantly, we need to have a plan of disaster risk reduction before the disaster. The plan has to be national one. The plan has to have a budget against it. And the plan has to be implemented by all stakeholders, importantly, by the most vulnerable people, because we know, Daniel, that nothing undermines development more than disasters. And disasters affect all of us, but they do not affect proportionately. The most vulnerable people, women, girls, indigenous people, people living with disability, the poor, these people are the most affected. The UN's top disaster risk reduction official, Mami Mitsutori, there outlining the scale of the threat posed by drought and desertification. Without water, what are we? It's not just farmers who need this vital life source, but all of us for energy production, waterborne transport, tourism, human health and biodiversity. And what could be more important than that? I'm sure we'll be back to revisit this topic again and check on UN member states' progress in holding drought at bay as part of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. But before that, it's my pleasure to welcome back friend of the show and regular guest Solange Berhategui-Cortez for some closing thoughts. Hi Solange, I know this drought report has particular resonance for you. Tell us why. Hola Daniel. Yes, this report by UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction is like thunder. As the world moves toward being two degrees Celsius warmer, we heard that drought could be the next pandemic. To me, it sounds like a thunderclap. Daniel, did you see the photo of scorched and cracked earth of the cover of the report? It's like looking in a mirror and discovering that your skin is so dry that the wrinkles have created furrows. When the earth is thirsty, it becomes an infertile tomb. And what is a body without water? What is a land without water? What the thunder said is the title of a chapter five of The Waste Land, a great poem by T.S. Eliot. It says, there is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of muck-cracked houses. If there were water, but there is hope. As you know, Daniel, I am from Bolivia, and there, for the Aymara culture, water is not a material resource, but a living being. The Aymara people know how to keep water to prevent and mitigate disasters caused by droughts. So they collect rainwater in the mountains by constructing cutañas, small dams. Water stored in cutañas represents a valuable resource for both people and domestic and wild animals. So yes, there is hope. As Mami Misutori said, we need to bring the most vulnerable populations' voices into national and global plans. Together, we can transform the dry thunder into life-giving rain. 
Thank you, Solange, A, for being on the show and B, for tackling T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, which still gives me nightmares from school, and for making it just a little bit more understandable. Time's up, so it just remains for me to thank you, listeners, and hope that you'll be back with us for another UN Catch-Up next week. Bye-bye for now. (music) Thank you.